But I find that my, my brother is really interested into, into country music, for example, and, and so he has developed a large set of expectations about how country music works. Um, and so when an artist kind of plays with some of those expectations within that genre, um, presumably <clears throat> my brother finds that interesting. And you can do that in a lot of different genres, and whether it be EDM or bluegrass or blues. Hi and welcome to And If Love Remains. I am your host, Mike Lovett, and I have again co-hosting with me, Mr. Doctor, excuse me, Elias <laughs> Axel Pedersen. How are you doing, Elias? How's it going, Mike? It's great to have you on. And we have, again, a special guest. It's a, a second timer here, and I'm I'm really excited to talk to, to Tom, Thomas W. Posen, who's a music theorist, pianist, educator, and composer-producer. He lives in Montreal. Um, he's at... Uh, McGill University, where he's a PhD candidate in music the theory. Um, and he has some interesting ideas, some exciting things to talk about. And and as always, it's, it's great to have you on, Tom. Thanks again for being on the show. Yeah, thanks a lot. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, this will be fun. Um, I, I want to start off, I, I, I noticed on your, on your uh, Facebook page recently that you put out that, that you have a paper that just... Um, is in the process of, of being published. And, and I know that's a big deal for a scholar. And, and maybe for those in our audience, can you talk a little bit, just walk us through that process a little bit. And then, and then also you mentioned the, the importance of this being kind of an open source arena and why that's important. Because I, I think that's important for, for people to understand. Absolutely. So first off, um, publishing as a scholar takes, well, obviously a lot of work and a lot of time uh, and so essentially what, what, what's going on with this paper, I'm publishing it through a new journal. It's called the Beethoven Journal, and it's hosted by the Ira Brilliant Center for Beethoven Research in San Jose. And so the university is, is hosting the journal. Uh, and so let me, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the process of publishing for, in an academic context, and then I'll talk about the, the open source bit. Um, but yeah, publishing in an academic um, context requires that you have peer review. So the article is submitted to an editor, and the editor then sends, picks two peer reviewers, so two scholars who are experts in that particular topic, and then they send that article to those peer reviewers. And the article is uh, blind, meaning there's no indication on who wrote the article, so it could be anybody. Uh, and then the reviewers read the article and, and judge it and say, yes, this is appropriate for publication, or uh, most often they will often say, yes, this is appropriate with some revision, hmm. um, or they'll just outright say that this is not appropriate for this journal. Mm -hmm. And so, so I submitted the article, and... Um, the editor sent it to two reviewers and I got back their reviewers. And uh, funny enough, one of the reviewers actually um, told me who they were because it would have been obvious uh, it, had they not. And because that, that reviewer was Alan Gosman. Uh, he's a, a Beethoven scholar who, who with Lewis Lockwood, another incredible Beethoven scholar, they both completed the transcription of the Eroica sketchbook. So it's, the, it's the sketchbook with all of the, the 
all of the drafts that I'm studying, um, right. they, they did this transcription. So I was really, really fortunate to have Alan Gosman uh, review, be one of the reviewers on the article. I don't know who the other person is, but but they did a, a wonderful job looking looking through the article. And they looked through in hyper detail at every chord, every sentence, uh, and so forth. And so that's, that's step one. Uh, so it was approved. And then step two, it goes through a copy editing uh, process. And so the editor and her colleague, Ara Berman and, and Paul Ellison, they're also Beethoven scholars. They copy edited it. Um, and so by the end of this, this entire process, um, they will have all four people will have closely looked through the article um, that are all Beethoven scholars. And then, of course, I, I worked on this project with my advisor, William Kaplan, and I presented this paper at several conferences, including the Society of Music Theory and so forth. So it's, uh, you know, it's like two years in the works of intense research and, and discussion with other scholarships. And then finally, the article makes it out into the, into the world. And it has my name on it, but uh, there are so many other people that, you know, influence my thought and, and help me uh, with, you know, formulating certain things and, and, or gave me suggestions that I either accepted or rejected. But uh, the point is that it really is a, it's a community that, that enables each one of these articles. That's, that's a great way to think about that, 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 you know, even though maybe the seed was your idea, but, but it really, it, it, it's a work for the scholar, scholarly community. It's, it's for the Beethoven community to kind of digest and, and make with it. It becomes kind of part of their corpus, if you will. Exactly. Yeah. And so you enter into a, a dialogue and with this particular work, uh, it, it's on the Eroica Symphony, which is one of the most discussed Beethoven pieces. So there's a, a long history of scholarship on this topic. And uh, I'm, I'm so fortunate and, and thankful that I get to be a part of this discourse on this topic. Um, and then, and then if I could, I'll, I'll mention just the journal. So the, the journal is, it's called the Beethoven Journal. And it's launching through the American Beethoven Society. And it's a new journal. So they had a Beethoven journal, but the journal at the time was sort of split. Uh, it was like half scholarly, half, um, I guess, non-scholarly, you would say. So without the, the peer review. Uh, so now it's relaunching as a peer-reviewed scholarly journal. Uh, and it's the first issue. So and, and oh, wow. it's looking like it's going to be an absolute great issue. And it should kickstart Beethoven research um, in new ways. And, and so in a way, I'm, I'm hopeful that my, my approach to sketch studies will encourage future people to look at the sketches in, in new ways and, and to, to reevaluate them. That, that's fantastic. I think that, it's amazing really... that, you know, <clears throat> of course, you've, you've been uh, raised in this and so have I. I mean, Beethoven's been part of all of, all of our lives. Uh, and yeah. we, and, you know, it's, uh, he's he's from such a long time ago. Some of these pieces are you know, a couple hundred years old, and and yet, uh, or I would think that everything's been solved. Everything's been known or mm -hmm. is known about his pieces, and you know it just comes down to at least with pianist, uh, what's a new interpretation or, or very subtle differences. Um, and yet, in the mm -hmm. performance world, we do hear new things coming to the fore, and it sounds yep. like with what you're doing, there are new things in the academic world too. And it just boggles my mind that there's still more to find out about Beethoven. Yeah, it's, it's really incredible. And I, I think 
um, I, I have another work that, that will hopefully come out pretty soon. It's on, on a di totally different topic. It's on mode, uh, which is also a very well-studied topic. Mm -hmm. And when you think about what has to happen for new knowledge to emerge, it, it starts to make sense why some of these things are just coming to the fore. So, mm -hmm. for example, there's a, there's a lot of, there was a lot of things known throughout Europe and Italy, Germany, France, and so forth. But uh, if if you were only fluent in one of those languages, you only get one snapshot of it. Mm -hmm. And so over time, we've been translating uh, treatises and works and instruction manuals and so forth. And then and then it takes another scholar to take all of those translations and synthesize them, mm -hmm. uh, and then more scholars to to look at those. The, the synthesis that they've done and say, yeah, this is good, or, or maybe you, you forgot a little bit of this, which happens to be really important. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think forever we will be discovering new things about Beethoven's works, Beethoven as a, as a person, uh, the culture in which he composed and existed. And uh, it's, it's super fun. It's really exciting. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's constantly new work. So it's not so much, I mean, I guess we're, we're discovering things, but we're also becoming smarter in a sense with, and, with the, the knowledge that we have. Yeah. And I assume there are certain ideas that become part of the general, you know, accepted uh, corpus or whatever of, of his work. And it's really hard to overturn those ideas. And that's, I think, partly what you're doing. And that takes time, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. time and pressure, yeah. I guess. It's just, you know, everybody's been thinking about a certain piece in a certain way for so long and uh, it just becomes the accepted norm. And then you, somebody does a sketch and, and you come along and say, hey, maybe we need to think about this differently. And, and do you see, do you foresee maybe in 50 years or another 100 years that somebody will look at this paper and, you know, theoretically come up with a new concept of, yeah, of how Beethoven. Thought? Absolutely. Yeah, honestly, I think that the best thing that can happen for a scholar is for someone to read your article and write a response to it, <laughs> right. uh, even even if it's negative, because mm -hmm. that that is uh, even better. Because then you get to to engage in a, in a dialogue. Uh -huh. uh, and and I know certainly as a as a PhD student, um, I've had some very heated discussions with some colleagues, some fellow PhD students on various topics, and those have really allowed us to refine our thinking and, and make stronger arguments ultimately. And mm -hmm. I'm perfectly fine with giving up on an argument if someone convinces me otherwise. Mm -hmm. I think that's the essence of, of being a scholar. Let me ask you a question about, about Beethoven specifically. Um, are his sketches in your mind unique? In other words, if we saw, if we saw the sketches of Mozart or Bach or, or um, you know, Handel or something, um, would we be asking the same questions or is there something unique about Beethoven's sketches, how he worked his workflow as to use a common term today uh -huh. that, that, that makes it, you know, um, more, I don't know, interesting is the right word, but, but um, part of this, this ongoing discussion. Yeah. Great question. Uh, so first off, I will have a portion in my dissertation where I discuss this question uh, to a degree. Um, in essence, it, it looks like to me from, from my current research that Mozart, Haydn, and probably many others, but I know for sure Mozart and Haydn sketched in a similar way uh, in the sense that they wrote long drafts called continu continuity sketches. Uh, there are exceptions to this, but, but it seems like they all 
kind of planned in a similar way. Um, one of the reasons that we study Beethoven sketches and, and not so much, uh, let's say, Haydn sketches is because we have a lot more sketches to look at. And Beethoven is a bit unique in that he kept so many of his sketches, even, even after moving so many times. Uh, and a lot of the sketches to Mozart's works are unfortunately lost and same with Haydn. So there's just a lot less to look at. But from, from what I've been looking at, and I, and I have been examining some of Haydn's sketches, um, there seems to be a similar process of composing where you write kind of the most important voice, if you will. And sometimes it's not always the most important, but uh, like a leading voice. Uh, so sort of a through line, um, if you think of a, of a story, it's like the through line through a story, like the most essential part of that story. And then mm -hmm. over the course of composing, you, you elaborate the characters and the settings and the scenes and so forth. Um, but, but there does seem to be a lot of similarities. It's interesting. I don't think most people uh, think of Mozart as somebody who, who sketched out a lot. Uh, we think of him, or at least ha he has this aura of just being able to come up with it in his head and then it just gets on paper. I watched uh, Amadeus too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm wondering what are some of, you said that a lot of his sketches and Haydn's, I mean, they're obviously older, but how do we know that they were lost and that they existed at some point? Um, and also another thing would be, are there more sketches of more recent composers than Beethoven or is he, he's someone it seems that went through just many versions and revisions of things more than most. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good questions. Um, so I would have, I need to look in more detail at, at just kind of how we know what's lost and what's available. Um, mm -hmm. But in terms of, there, there are a lot of modern sketch studies. So there's a lot of study on Elliot Carter, mm -hmm. um, Stravinsky, and uh, Christoph Neidhofer. He's a professor at McGill in music theory. Um, he also studies a lot of serial composers' sketches. Mm -hmm. So he, he's a sketch scholar, but uh, wow. kind of 20th, 21st century sketch scholar. So I think, in a way, Beethoven started the movement of sketch studies, the, mm -hmm. the study of compositional process. Um, but, but yeah, they, I think they, the overall scholarship in sketch studies is really healthy now. And, um, yeah. And, and, but Beethoven will always be kind of, you know, for me at least center <laughs> because yeah, yeah. started it. And, uh, there's just so many interesting questions to be posed and discoveries that we can make. I guess you can't them. do, do any sketch studies with Sorabji because he doesn't have any. Yeah, and, and I and, and the idea of Mozart um, kind of uh, not having to sketch is fascinating, and, and I think there there's a there's a great scholar by the name of Derek Ramis, and he has been talking a lot about how we should think maybe less of composers like J. S. Bach as kind of superhuman geniuses that uh, sit down and, and pen heavenly thoughts, and more as experts expert craftsmen. So they have a, a series yeah. of, of tools and, and kind of sequences and patterns that they are expert with. And then it's about the artistic deployment of those patterns mm -hmm. um, that, that makes you an artist. And so 
I, I think unfortunately we have this concept of, of music like coming from the head and being from divine inspiration. It's kind of a romantic thought uh, right. that came out of the 19th century and, and then was furthered through various marketing teams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the biggest, you know, when, when I, I play and I know you've performed recitals and the, mm. the most misunderstood, I always think music is one of the most misunderstood um, fields in all in yeah. all fields. I mean, even the way it's portrayed in movies, you know, I, we've talked about this before. Yeah. I know cops probably watch cop shows and they're not, or, you know, lawyers watch judge type shows and uh, like, yeah, it's not quite like that. But I feel music, it's like, didn't you have anybody on set that plays a musical instrument? That's terrible. It's not even close <laughs> yeah. to how it would be played. Yeah. Um, and and because of, partly because of that, I think people have this romantic notion and that to be a musician, you know, what does that even entail? What do you have to do? And and it really just takes talent. So the reason that uh, X person is not a musician is because they lack talent. Whereas you wouldn't say that, oh, I'm not a doctor because I don't have talent. I'm not a lawyer because I don't right. have talent. Yeah. You know, it's, talent I, is such a weird word. <laughs> such a, I yeah. completely agree. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah I, I try to fight against talent. Oh, so do uh, I. Yeah. But, you know, it, but it, it's a it's a strange thing. I, I sort of wonder if we could replace talent with some sort of innate obsession. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I found that when I have students who are, for whatever reason, a little more obsessed with piano, mm -hmm. uh, or, or maybe obsessed is too strong a word, but if, if they just, for some reason, are a little bit more motivated to practice, then they will ultimately do better. It's not necessarily yeah. about them having been born with more talent than student you know another student um well, yeah it's also how it's you define really question it's sort of a, a how how obsessed can you get yeah it's also defining what ta i think talent is and you're trying to redefine that i, I read a book the talent code and i had you know some there's some issues with it uh i, I think uh -huh. some claim that it's just proof that there's no such thing as talent and i don't think that's what it was proving um but it's uh -huh. just how do how do we define talent and it might be uh, an inclination or a proclivity towards something that really gets you somewhere else. You know, this this uh, perfecting and incessant <laughs> striving for a higher goal. Maybe those people become yeah. better at a certain craft, you know. Well, so, there's yeah. some, I mean, there's some obvious examples. You know, if, if we talk about, you know, the suns are playing tonight. Mm -hmm. No matter how long or hard I uh, you know, I play, I love basketball, yeah. but if I, if, you know, I can shoot all day, I can be obsessed with it. I can know everything about it. I can be everything, but I'm still a five foot 10 dude mm -hmm. who is, is going to yeah. struggle in the NBA. And, and that, and so, you know, talent is, is, I think if we think in terms of the capability to do something versus the skill you know, the skills acquired and to be able to do it. Like if, if you're physically able, if you have the mental capacity and then you, you strike that with desire, uh, as you mentioned, Tom, that, uh -huh. that, you know, that's kind of the, the secret that the everyone's kind of looking for, I think. Yeah. 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 yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I grew up playing baseball and, and, and sports as well. And, and there are, there are limits. And of course, Olympic athletes are certain body types for gymnastics and others for, um, but I feel like there, the parallels with music. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I really encourage people to pursue music. If they have a desire to pursue music, they, they should do it no matter what age they are, what size they are. 
you know, I think I think anybody can do music, and the trick is to find a, a good teacher. Um, and yeah, once you do that and you devote yourself to that pursuit, I think anybody can start. You know, no matter what age. Mm-hmm. I totally agree, and I also think an appreciation for music, and you know, and I think um, when when we can hear, like we all hear. Um, Differently, yeah. We talked about this last night. Yeah, where, where, where people people can hear, you know, greatness when they when they hear it, and they can they can recognize the difference, which which kind of takes us to back to, to Beethoven, um, and you know, the greatness of Beethoven, um, the the hard work that he put into being yeah. great, um, and and I want to talk about kind of these, these sketches, maybe a little bit more detail, and and what you discovered and what you've kind of worked out um, with with. Yeah. Um, so, so maybe at this point, uh, it would be a good time to listen to kind of what Beethoven wrote and then what I did to what he wrote. And then I can kind of talk about my process of uh, going through this. So we don't need to listen to the, the whole thing. Maybe we can listen to a portion of the exposition. I, I, can, I can tell you when to, to okay. end it. Um, but if you play the, the single line sketch, Okay, so we're gonna play a little bit now. This is this is what Beethoven wrote in his sketchbook, um, right? And okay. and I've played this on a piano, um, yeah. But but this is just literally his notes, so there's no additions. Okay, here we go. Okay, so we could probably start it right there just to, uh, so you get an idea. And uh, hopefully there wasn't too too much feedback there. I put on a, a pair of I, I think I can, I can edit that out, but I think it, there's a little bit, but yeah. it wasn't too bad. And we, and we can, yeah, we can talk about it and then just put that actual clip in, in the Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. So I, I put on some headphones and uh, maybe that's better. But okay, yeah, so starting now. Um, so, so yeah, you can see it's, it's really basic, um, in the sense that there's not a lot of voices, there are not chords going on. There's no counterpoint really. Uh, it's just a single line. Um, right. and so it was something to jog his memory for when he came to realize it. And so the, to analyze this, um, we need more detail about it ultimately. Otherwise we're just making complete subjective statements about, oh, this sounds like a theme or this doesn't sound like a theme. And you have no kind of uh, theory to back up your claims on, on what how you're segmenting things. And so uh, the next task is to flesh this single line sketch out. And so so what I've done is- but, made but Before it into, we do that, one thing you, yeah. I mean, as I listen to that, one thing you can hear is 
obviously it's it's a it's a it's a melody line that's go that starts out kind of in the bass line and then moves up into the treble and so you can hear yes. this idea of okay he's definitely going from instrument to instrument but it's, this is the basic melody this is the motif that he wants to carry through yeah that's a really good point it, it's going through multiple voices bass treble alto tenor and so yeah you could realize this with many different instruments absolutely yeah and and the so, harmony is sort of implied not all the time exactly yeah yeah it, yeah so the, the my basis and my and one of one of the uh foundations of my research suggests that the harmonies are implied most of the time and consequently we can realize those harmonies uh, and then basically the test is, does this sound like Beethoven <laughs> once you've realized the harmonies, right? And if, and if you've answered that question with a, with a positive, then you can say, yeah, okay, this, this is working out. This is probably what he was thinking, like the more full texture. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, questions of actual texture, like did he harmonize it with, uh, you know, no, probably not. Did he, right, did he right. do... You know, th those are those are more difficult questions. But my approach has been to to basically uh, learn from the final version of the piece and say, mm -hmm. you know what, he might have been thinking about that that type of texture right at the beginning, and mm -hmm. who knows if he was. Uh, but for for the sake of these realizations, I whenever a part in the sketch looks like the final version, I realize it in essentially the same way, meaning I, I flesh it out in the same way. And so the the real challenge is. It, occurs in all these parts where they're, uh, you know, it, it's not exactly clear what was happening, but using some theory and knowing the context and, and looking at where it's going and so forth, you can make really, uh, I think, objective statements about what he's accomplishing in, in various parts of the sketch. And that's a big deal to be able to say, I really think that this is what he was going for. Like, as opposed to, uh, maybe here we have the final version, but you know, here's this kind of weird thing, you know, for you to actually be able to, to, to piece out and, and, and say, this is, this is actually what I think he was thinking and was going for. Right. Yeah. And so there's basically, uh, I'll say two factors, maybe there's a third, but I'll, I'll, I'll say there's two, but the, the first factor is that there's, you can corroborate your findings with successive sketches. Uh, and so if, if something returns in the next sketch and maybe it's a little more elaborated or, or uh, it, it, it repeats in a similar way, in a similar design, you can say, okay, yeah, this, this is a topic that he's working on. Uh, and then the second thing is just if you see a pattern that, that matches the final version, then I think there's no reason to say that it would have been radically different uh, and then he came to something different for the final piece. I mean, it's it's impossible to know what he's improvising at the piano, right? Uh, but but the I think the the best approach is just to take Occam's razor and say this this seems to be the most likely, and it would be crazy if he, you know. Well, and and, yeah. and you've written music. I mean, as as a composer, like what you improvise on the piano is not necessarily what you're thinking. <laughs> yeah. You yeah, know, and, like what we have to go by is, is what his intention is and, and what his intention is what he wrote down. Right. And and I think like, for example, I've just I've harmonized this uh, this beginning. You'll see how I did it, but I didn't harmonize it like. I, I didn't do something like that uh, because it's not characteristic of, of the final piece in any way. This boom, chick, chick type of wall. Right. Uh, and so 
you you make certain uh, you know statements, and I, and I don't think that there will ever be a perfect realization or reconstruction of this sketch, um, but you can get really close, and um, or you can have objectively better reconstructions than other ones, and so. Maybe at this point we can listen to the kind of my reconstruction of it. And I should say too at this point that, um, so I've, I've, I started these reconstructions and um, they're necessary because you need basically a baseline at all times to know um, harmonic function and, and formal function, which we can talk about afterwards. But um, there, there's also been some realizations by uh, performer scholar Robert Levin <clears throat> And uh, so he, with Alan Gosman, orchestrated some of these sketches. And uh, I think, unfortunately, COVID hit, and so they had to change the presentation of the concert they had planned. But um, I'm hoping to get in contact with him and compare some some of the realizations of these sketches. But unfortunately, he hasn't done every sketch. He's done just a few. And so... Um, yeah, wow, that's really awesome! Yeah. That's a big that name. Uh, I love his yeah uh, his concerts, and he he still kind of practices the uh, or or performs you know the old practice of improv in the classical world. Right. And most pianists don't study that. Organists do, and actors do. You know, they study improv, but um, classical musicians tend not to. And he's he's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, and and he uh, I just I I have a realization. Um, of, of the second sketch and it's fantastic and, and ours awesome. corresponded actually very very closely oh that's, that's so cool so yeah it's, it's really really fun to compare these and, and it'll be interesting to see where they differ and why they differ uh, and so forth so I'm hoping to connect with with him in time um, through through Alan Gosman so we'll see what happens there but uh, for now let's listen to the that first uh, my reconstruction of the first sketch and okay. it's a piano thing. So, and this is what a lot of composers do. They compose at the piano, uh, you know, Wagner is recorded to have, been do, have done this as well. You, you record it, the, you, you write everything down and then you make it at the piano and then you orchestrate it. Mm -hmm. So it's piano centric. And so the, the version I've realized is not orchestral, it's, it's piano, but it's basically a symphonic piano reduction. That's the mm -hmm. way to think about it. Okay. All right, here we go. Here's, the reconstruction. portion that we heard right at, right at the end there that is actually not in the final version and uh for, for people who are not listening to the heroic every day like myself um you, you probably didn't catch that uh or it, it sounded this that sounded like the eroica more or less yeah uh, definitely sound like beethoven yeah and it sounds like beethoven so i think it i, I think 
<laughs> from my perspective, obviously, because I'm doing it, it proves the test. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think once once you've made that step, then it's the next question is to to figure out what's going on in that sketch. Now, I found that I had to do this realization, and I, I have some texture you can hear. I do chord repetition, so it's not just a frame. And right. one of the one of the reasons I did that uh, has to do with the idea that these early sketches are not. Uh, sort of deformed versions of the final. Uh, and that that was, I mentioned this last time we, we spoke, but the idea that all of the sketches are sort of uh, terrible and then they gradually get better. <laughs> There's this sort of evolution idea uh, with that a lot of people sort of assume. And I'm trying to combat that. I'm, I'm basically saying, uh, no, he knows what he's doing right at the beginning. And then it's a matter of changing their order and, and making it maybe more interesting or longer or complex or less complex. There's there's so many artistic you know questions and approaches you can take, but uh, the idea is to make them sound good in the very first sketch. Right. That's... So yeah, that's that's step one. And then step two is to actually sit down and analyze this and say, well, how's this organized? How does that compare to the final? uh and and so forth and and how does that and how in your mind like how does that compare to the final when, when you look at that compared to what is is in um in the final version i mean it, it sounds you know like i said it sounds like beethoven it sounds like what it's supposed to be but yeah. what are what are the things from a theoretical standpoint that you notice that you go wait a sec he, this is what he changed and maybe why did would he change that yeah um so there's a compound answer, question yeah, for you. <laughs> yeah. To, so to answer this question, I think we're going to need a, a little information about uh, the theory that I'm using to, to approach this work. Very good. And, but before that, I'll just say this, and I'll, I'll give a, a little kind of a payoff of, of, of learning a little bit about that for right at the beginning here. Uh, so I discovered in the process of looking at the first sketch and looking at its formal layout, its form function uh, schematic, if you will, the, that it, the formal layout matches closely the formal layout of Mozart's last piano concerto, uh, the exposition of it. And so my thesis is that Beethoven modeled his first sketch after the formal design of Mozart's exposition to his last piano concerto. Uh, and it's quite remarkable, actually, that they that they are so similar. The formal layout of these two, because everyone tends to think that the the Eroica is the is the symphony in which Beethoven broke out of previous models, and this is his unique expression, and it's not classical. And uh, but I really do think that he modeled it after this Mozart piece, all the more so uh, because this particular formal design. Uh, is incredibly rare in the classical style. So rare that that I have not found any example of this formal layout in any other piece. It's uh, incredible. And there's no other piece known by my advisor William Kaplan. He's a, uh, he's analyzed a tremendous amount of this music, and he can't think of uh, any parallels to this design. So, um, yeah, when you can kind of extract the formal features of it and and you can compare that with pre-existing pieces you can make statements like that and i think that's 
that's really exciting and insightful. That is super exciting. That, so maybe Mozart is more the uh, originator. But I also want to ask how different, like you say, the formal design is, is unique in the classical era. Um, is it really that different from anything else? Or is it just slight tweaks here and there? Um, yeah, so so I'll get in. I think to, to answer that question, you really need a, a little bit of, of form function theory. Uh, and so I'll do my best not to make this overly technical because I, I, it can become technical. Um, if, if you've seen my YouTube video, you, you can get lost in a, a whirlwind of, of terms. But I think the easiest way to understand form function theory is through the metaphor of anatomy and physiology. And so if you're a surgeon, let's say, if you want to perform surgery, you have to learn both anatomy and physiology. But they're by they're the way, dependent. By the way, I love where you're like, okay, let's talk about form function theory. Let's think about something easy like surgery. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I guess that's uh, what happens when you're in PhD land for two yeah, right. <laughs> There's that uh, meme where there's a, a rocket, you know, a physicist or whatever with all these equations. And then there's a music theorist with all these, you know, uh, uh, progressions and whatnot. He's like, it's not rocket <laughs> yeah. science. And then the scientist is like, it's not music theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's so true. It, it gets very technical very quickly, but yeah. Anyway, um, sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. So I, I in fact, uh, I'm, I'm writing a chapter on Aristotle has this really fantastic book. I can't remember if I mentioned it to you both, but it's called on the parts of animals. And basically Aristotle spends a long time saying how, how can we describe you know, things basically. And, and he ascribes, he basically says that we need to understand the function of those things. Right. So if we're looking at defining a heart, there is both a contextual position. So you have to identify where that heart is. Uh, but also we have to say that these, this is what hearts do. Hearts pump blood. So hearts right. have a very particular function to them. And so, uh, ultimately, what form function theory is, is about looking at passages of music and saying, what is the formal function of that passage? And at its most basic, a passage can express being at the beginning, at the middle, or at the end. That's mm -hmm. kind of the, the, the most simplified version of, of saying, okay, well, and then that would seem at first to be obvious, like I'm listening to the piece, that's the beginning, I'm in the middle, I'm in the middle, you know. But actually, uh, the, the, the notion is that the music itself, based on its, on its characteristics, yeah. uh, gives us an impression of uh, where it's, if it's beginning, middle, and end. And with the beginning and middle and end paradigm, you can, you can become very complex. Like if you think about your day, for example, uh, your day starts in the morning with your breakfast. But there are a series of, well, for me it does, because I love mm -hmm. breakfast. But uh there are a series of routines that are beginning, middle, and end in the process of making breakfast. For me, it's well, and, and and how you and how do you define the beginning? Like for some people, the beginning is waking up. For some people, the right. beginning like like it's there's a coffee. lot of beginnings that you can start with, and, and yeah. it's really what's the context of what the story is trying to tell you is the important thing. Right, and and basically, when I eat lunch, when I take my first bite of lunch, that is the beginning of me doing lunch but lunch is in the middle of my day, right? So you can have a beginning yeah. that's in the middle, that's in, uh, you know, maybe it's a, a Monday. So it's at the 
the first day of the week. So it's at the beginning of the middle of the beginning, right? So you can, you can get actually really complex with temporal designations. So, so a quick question, because I think a lot of, you know, the, the, discuss, the discussion on what uh, certain notes or harmonies might represent is slightly cultural. So I'm going to pose a, a question with that analogy with the food. What if I were to have waffles at dinner time? Um, would that yeah. be, you know, what do you make of that? Yeah. So, um, well, okay. So form function theory was formulated. Uh, it started with, with Arnold Schoenberg, who also learned from many others. And then it went through another scholar named Aaron Ratz. And then it was elaborated by my advisor, William Kaplan. And it's restricted uh, and, and, and Bill's book to analyzing, it's called Analyzing Classical Form, but it's restricted to Mozart, Haydn, and Beethoven. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's highly, it, it's restricted by nature to that specific culture. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I've been using this theory to analyze 19th century music, uh, EDM, and, and many other concepts. And you have to make certain exceptions and, and revisions, but, but the essence of the theory, I think, is very, very strong. And it, it may not apply to all musics equally, mm-hmm. um, but the, the notion, let's see, if I, if I play piano, can you hear this? Yeah. Yes. So the, the notion ultimately is that there's essentially three types of progressions. Uh, we have a prolongational progression. So So we're just sort of neighboring around the, the C minor tonic right there. Um, and then there's a cadential progression. So so that's an ending progression. And so if we combine a beginning with an ending, we get something. We get a, a beginning and an ending. And then the other one is a sequential progression, and we'll just leave that aside for now. But uh, it's it's a very much it creates the sense of being uh, in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so basically, form function is tied very very strongly to our notion of harmonic progressions. Mm-hmm. And so once you've identified your harmonic progressions, you can identify that the music is is giving us its temporal expression of where it lies. Um, either the beginning, middle, and end. And as I said, those beginning and middle and ends can be you know, more complicated and nested and so forth. And so then we create a typology, meaning words for describing a bunch of things um, to, to label things, much like it's, we have to label things in anatomy, right? We have to, mm-hmm. if you want to be a heart surgeon, it's not enough to know that there's a heart, right? right. right. And you have to know all of the, the small arteries and so forth and everything else that I have no clue about, but you have to know, you have to get into more granular fine-tooth details. And, and the same thing happens in form function theory and, and it can get very, very granular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so then, well, so once you do that, then you can start labeling all of the parts and describing how all of those parts give rise to what is in essence a musical organism. Yeah, that's, wow. that's a great analogy. So that's, that's yeah. a lot of stuff to think about and take in. It's yeah, wow. Yeah. So, it, so, so how does that? So if we're looking at a, a musical uh, form, you know, if I if I'm looking at a chicken, which I'm looking at right outside, mm-hmm. and 
you know, and, and all of a sudden this other organism comes in that, that looks sort of like a chicken and maybe, you know, it's a, got a beak, it's got, you know, wings, um, but it's a different form. It's a, you know, maybe we'll call it a duck, yeah. you know, yeah. um, the, is that what you're talking about with Beethoven? Like all of a sudden he has this, this form that is only found in one other place, which is this Beit or this Mozart uh, piano concerto um, that you're going yeah, to so like, there's some, there's something, there, there's something going on here. Yeah. I, I can give you um kind of, um, I can play through some of the, the parts, if you will. So you could see the, the, the chicken leg, <laughs> which, uh, which would be the, uh, you know, something like a transition or something. Um, yeah. I mean, the metaphor, it goes pretty far, I find, but there are some differences because right. music is, is sort of moving through time. And so the, the notion of form is expressed over time rather than as a, uh, an object that is that's in time, that's in time that's and filling time. space. Yeah. Um, so, but, but to give you an idea, so the main, we, we would call this the main theme. And we could even break that down. We could say this is our basic idea. And then a contrasting idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the cadence happens. There's the cadence. Uh, so that whole, this whole beginning is the main theme. And then what follows uh, sounds like the main theme. Um, and so it uses sequential. the same, the same material, but yeah, it uses a sequential pattern. Uh, and so because of that sequential pattern, we, we say, oh, actually this is no longer functioning as a main theme. It's, it's a transition. Now, this is the, the beauty of form function theory is that we're, we can separate content from our notion of what this thing is, how, how it's functioning, because the same content can function in different ways. So at the beginning, that was all prolongational. And so it's a beginning, whereas at the transition, it's the same content. As soon as that happens, it's, it's sequential. And so right. it's in the middle. It's the middle. Uh, yeah. So what happens in this piece is we have a, we have a, a main theme, and then we have a transition. And then we get what's called a staying on the dominant. And you'll notice that the harmony doesn't change. It's all five. Yeah, so it's just prolonging five. Uh, so that's called a staying on the dominant, and that's part of the transition. And then after that, we get this new, this was is the subordinate theme. It's another, it's so in a sonata, we have a main theme and a subordinate theme. We'll not deal with that too much, but the subordinate theme, strangely enough, starts with the main theme content. Now, the fascinating thing about this is that we uh, have a, a main, a subordinate theme that has both characteristics of initiation and transition. So that is quite unusual. Wow. Uh, and, and then we get another uh, saying that I'm after that. And then this is the theme that we know from the final piece. 
So that's a, yeah, another subordinate theme. So this is our second subordinate theme. And then finally we get a third uh, subordinate theme, which it brings back again, the main theme material. So um, in, in essence, we have a subordinate theme group that is composed of three separate parts and none of those parts ever bring a close. <laughs> so and that's amazing, yeah. I, I'm wondering, I, a couple things are coming to mind you yeah. going through so much stuff. Uh, one thing is that since time, uh, since music is, is temporal, you know, it's part of time, you almost have backwards defining aspects of it. So you said the subordinate theme or, or the transition part, it starts just like the main theme until we get mm -hmm. that, you know, half step going up, da, 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 and that yes. kind of, in, in retrospect then makes it a transition. Whereas if we had just heard that first part, um, we would think we're still right. just repeating the beginning. So that's kind of interesting how definitions, um, the de yes, definition absolutely. of something will change as time goes on or how we hear it. Uh, so it's kind of subjective, but in a way objective, the way you're, you're classifying it. And the other thing is you yes. said the temporal theme, you've got those three sections, but I felt that one and three sounded pretty similar so what's the difference yes can't, can't you say it's one two and one a um yeah so so um okay let me address the first part and that's that um it's it's a retrospective retrospective yeah. yeah uh and so actually there's a, there's a, some wonderful scholarship by a scholar named janet schmalfeld and interestingly enough she worked a lot with uh, bill kaplan william kaplan uh, they they worked together at McGill for a number of years. And when he was formulating his theory, uh, she, she had a lot of ideas about that. And so she has a mm. book called In the Process of Becoming, which mm. basically examines that uh, in a very detailed way. Uh, and so it, it sort of, it depends on the size of your window. So I, mm. it, like in, in uh, code speak, academic mm. speak, it would be at your phenomenological window. So basically how wide uh your your perception window is and mm -hmm. and as you said it starts with the main thing material again so we think and then as soon as it sequences we say oh transition and so in our head we're able to say oh the start of that main thing material was actually the start of the transition right it seems like a, a reasonable statement that that we can do that uh but it's it's hard to know just how big our window of perception can be, or how small it can be. Mm -hmm. um, but but that's something that this theory deals with a lot. Well, in um, some ways, it sounds like Beethoven's playing like a, almost a magician's trick on on our yes. ears. Yeah, and it's uh, it's pretty common to start to transition using uh, material from the main theme. Uh, <clears throat> it's it's actually extremely common. It's, it's yeah. more rare to to not do that. Yeah. Um, now, so the the interesting. Thing about this first sketch is that normally, like in, a, in its most prototypical form, you have a main theme transition, and then if you were making a small piece, you would have one subordinate theme. And in this piece, we have a main theme, a transition, and then a subordinate theme that has three constituent parts. And the fact that it has three parts and none of those parts close, that is extremely rare. Okay. And in the, in the Mozart piece, it has a, a main theme, a transition, and then a subordinate theme with three parts, and then the last part closes. So, so that's the the main difference that that Mozart actually closes the very last part, but in Beethoven he keeps it open. He keeps uh, it going. 
Yeah, it's more common to have a main theme transition in a two-part subordinate thing, but but I, I, I haven't seen a three-part. That's what's so rare. Well, what's an example of a two-part subordinate theme? Do you have any off the top of your head? Um, yeah, good question. Uh, there's, there's a number of them. Well, uh, I'd, so have I to, he, I'd have to pull it up. Uh, yeah, but I'd like, be curious. Let's say, yeah. So, so in, in essence, the, the way that, that uh, we can kind of think about this whole process is that initially composers expand pieces by just adding more themes. So in the first symphony, you have a main theme, a transition, and then multiple subordinate themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you just kind of tack another theme on, put it on, and, and then mm-hmm. the piece grows. And by the time of the third symphony, the relationship of those those themes in the subordinate theme group are uh, more complicated. They're hierarchical. They're integrated. They they don't clearly close off. Sometimes they use similar material, and so it, it becomes a much more complicated subordinate theme group than than just a, a string of connected themes. Yeah, more organically thought out. I feel right. Exactly. Now. Yeah, so that's that's the first sketch. Now the the second sketch uh, is is also incredibly fascinating because he he stages uh, the impression that the piece is starting over, uh, and then because there's this really special moment in this in this eroica where it dips down to the C sharp. Everyone talks about this. <laughs> And this is such a, a strange moment because C sharp is not in the key, right? So we have this, and we could do this. We we could do that. That's actually what listeners thought would happen when they first heard it. You, we have some recordings of of uh-huh. uh, critics at the time that said, you know, it, there's this amazing move at the beginning where you think he's going to go to a different key, but he doesn't. Uh, and so that's C sharp. Uh, that that dip down is is a really really special moment, and basically Beethoven creates the impression of the piece repeating, and then instead of that moment, he does this. I'll show you. And then, and then we we end in a totally new way, and so he actually reinterprets the the C sharp as a B flat, which. He does in the final piece, but in a different place. But it's just, it's incredible what he does in the second sketch to, to kind of fake the listener out. And that is that is brilliant. And then I think um, I want to break down one part of what you said mm-hmm. um, for our listeners. One thing, because you said it was a C sharp and then he reinterprets it as a D flat. And and oh, yeah, um, thanks. That that's and for, for our listeners, that's called an enharmonic note. In other words, it's the same note. Um, right. It's similar to I was explaining I was explaining the concept of double sharps to my student the other day and uh, <laughs> yeah and I, I and he said well why isn't that just a G and I said well it's 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 fine if it's just a G when you're just hearing it but the difference is when you write the thing down it's like it's like the different there's in there mm-hmm. if you right. if you write down the wrong there it's spelled incorrectly and it doesn't say what you're trying to say. Yeah, and exactly. so the fact that he's able to reinterpret that note as a different note, which is which completely changes the um, the the texture, it, it changes what he's actually saying in the piece. Exactly. Yeah. Another way to think about it is that the a C sharp, the sharp makes it want to go up, 
whereas the flat implies that it's going to go down. And yep. and so that spelling is is kind of it's pointing it in a particular direction. And so even though it's the same note, the different spelling like that's a good analogy with there and there uh, mm -hmm. that it has it has a different meaning. Yeah. And then yeah. that kind of overlooks or as, assumes, you know, that the the, um, the A440, you know, wasn't – it was sort of established almost. You know, we're not talking about the difference between a C right. sharp and a D flat, really. We're not going that far back. Uh, they're, <laughs> they're essentially right, right. the same on the piano. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and if you wanted to as a, as a violinist or whatever, you could lean into it a little bit and yeah. make it a little sharper or a little flatter and, and so forth. But yeah, but yeah at, that, at this point, every, in harmonic equivalence is yeah. established. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, it might be interesting. I, 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 could, I could narrate sort of my anatomy or parsing of, of the second sketch. Uh, okay. Sure. If that sounds like an interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, so I'll speak over it, and hopefully, hopefully that'll. So, so, do you want me to play this here? Yeah. So let me let me pull up here. This will be the the CS one dash two. And so the amazing thing too about this is that all of this stuff that we're listening to today, there's there's three versions of it, and it occupies just two pages in the sketchbooks, and. Uh, I've written some 20,000 words on these two pages and uh, the entire row of sketches occupy, I think something like 80 pages. Oh uh, my God. 80 plus pages. So I, I'm, I won't be writing about all 80 pages in, in the detail that I'm doing now, of course, but it's just a tremendous amount of information. Is, is Beethoven a bottomless pit? And I, I mean that in the best yes. way, like a bottomless well, like there's just, you, you can't get to the bottom of him. I mean, I think when I was talking about obsession, uh, he was pretty obsessed with music, to put, yeah. it, to put it simply. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah. Let's see here. Um, Let me know when you're ready. Okay, so we might have to... This I forgot that the second sketch I started right at the... Um, at, a, at a continuation of this. So I started actually right in the middle because it's a revision of the first sketch. So we could, uh, let's start the CS1-1 and then I'll tell you when to stop. Uh, and I can, and you, this will be fun because we'll, we'll get to hear uh, a little portion of the, of the first sketch and then you can hear immediately where the revision happens and then I'll show you where the, the fake, uh, where the big fake out happens. All right, here's okay, so, the first yeah. one. Okay. I think. Yeah, so CS1-1. So I can't hear it. Oh, there we go. Okay, so here we have our main theme. Oh, it's gone. Oh, let's try it one more time. Good, so our main theme is happening right now. And then here's the famous C sharp. Are we gonna modulate? No, step out of it. And we cadence, right? Perfect authentic cadence. So now we're transitioning. achieved our half cadence and are standing on the dominant. So we're setting up the subordinate theme. Subordinate theme starts right now. Strangely, it sounds kind of transitional. Where are we going? <laughs> really excited <laughs> moment. 
they're standing on the dominant. So we've done a half cadence. We still haven't gotten a full close yet. So still standing on the dominant. Subordinate theme part two. Repeats. Now here's the continuation. So we're in the middle. Let's stop it right there. Okay. So this part uh, that we just heard, this um, this that's called the continuation, and that's that's the the middle uh, section of the second subordinate theme. So the second subordinate theme, just to remind everybody, is this, and then this is the middle part of that. Now, uh, so for the second sketch, Beethoven revised it right at that middle part, the continuation of this. Uh, so okay. we're gonna hear a new version of that. It's gonna be a much more aggressive, aggressive version of that. And then uh, I'll walk us through uh, that portion. So now if you wanna start, here we um, go. One dash two. One dash two. So it's a subordinate theme. New continuation. Oh, I lost my oh, audio. I stopped it. It's starting. I apologize. Oh, no worries. So subordinate theme. Repetition. New, much more aggressive. Okay, we're moving towards our final cadence. We've been looking for this. Oh, it doesn't happen, <laughs> right? So he evades it, and we say, what's going on? Okay, we're going back to the tonic. Okay, we're going back to the exposition repeat. Okay, we're back at the beginning. <laughs> oh, we're not at the beginning, right? We just got juked twice. big climactic final ending. Now we're actually at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so it's so clever. That's, he's the Barry Sanders of shooting <laughs> <laughs> yeah. everybody. That's yeah. amazing. Like That's three so fake cool. outs. He's like, you're, you're going you're gonna go here. Nope, sorry. You're going to go here. Nope, sorry. Now <laughs> we're finally ending. Wait, we're at the beginning already? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it, and, it, and it all hinges. The, the fascinating thing about this is that it, when in the main theme, oh, oh, sorry, I think it's starting again. Oh, no problem. I hit uh, it. And in the main theme, when it goes down to the C sharp, for the listener, everyone thought that it was going to do this. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a disorienting device, right? It's like this is super unusual for the main theme. And then the funny thing about it is that when that note comes back and, and what we believe to be the new beginning, it that note reorients us. And it tells us once that note moves in the opposite direction, we say, oh, we're actually at the end. We're not at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so what, what was originally disorienting becomes orienting. Mm -hmm. That's I, I'm that wondering, so you said great. that at the time his listeners expected that. And, and I wonder if yeah. we can hear it with those ears and have those same, you know, cultural expectations, or if that's just kind of a highfalutin 
you know, there are select musicians that expect that, but not everybody in the audience did. I will say for me personally, like, especially as Tom's walking us through that, like it is clearly disorienting. And then it's clearly, I know right where we're at. So yeah, yeah it, it is to me, the, 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 you know, it's clear what's going on there. It's, it's yeah. pretty amazing. But, to but you're hear also it. a trained musician. So that's true. You know, but you know, those also, harmony. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and, and I think there's, you know, obviously somebody who isn't familiar with the form that we're already dealing with. And that's, I think a problem, <laughs> you know, yeah. we're, we're, when we're talking about people who, who don't know Sonata form or don't know, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, I, I don't know what a, um, you know, what, a, what, what a, four bar blue or 12 bar blues is supposed to, to sound like until I know what it is. And then I know how to subvert it or change it. Right. Yeah. So th this is the essence. And so one of the principal difficulties of the research that, that I've been talking about is reconstructing in a sense, the, the early 19th century. And when I say early 19th century, I'm saying around 1803, reconstructing that listener basically. Yeah. Uh, and, and so yeah, I think when I when I walk people through this, it's it's like yeah, definitely that's that's what's going on. Uh, but for for someone, if I uh, you know took someone that that doesn't listen to classical music on the regular, um, they wouldn't have a set of expectations for how sonata form is structured um, and so forth. But but I find that my my brother is really interested into into country music, for example, and and so he has developed a large set of expectations about how country music works. Mm -hmm. um, and so when an artist kind of plays with some of those expectations within that genre, um, presumably <clears throat> my brother finds that interesting. Mm -hmm. And you can do that in a lot of different genres, and whether it be EDM or mm -hmm. bluegrass or um, blues, you know. And, and like you said, it's about messing with the turnaround or, or yeah. maybe putting in another a little inflection. And so there are always kind of, uh, there's a, there's a structure that you're playing with. Mm -hmm. and, and I wonder too, I mean, those are, that's what artists do. They, they play with what's already there established and try to mess around and fool around and, and change your expectations. But, uh, at what point did those new, um, experiments become the norm like this was certainly a big yeah. thing for beethoven to break out of the mold and and even the mold that was set by mozart which again probably was was yeah. based on of something but still breaking out of a mold and then we uh maybe we have to break out of beethoven's mold you know to have any effect yeah it's sort of uh i think maybe there's a lot of things going on there um but when you think about 19th century music uh, like Mahler, for example, Gustav Mahler. I think there's audiences that would struggle in listening to Mahler, uh, and Mahler and struggle in the sense that they would say, "Yeah, like this sounds pretty good, but I, I, I don't like. It's hard for me to follow. Like I don't mm -hmm. know where it's going." You know, mm -hmm. and part of that is because he's building off of expectations that came out late in the classical era, so mm -hmm. early 19th century, and then. He's tweaking on top of those, and then you know he give you a massive chord, and then takes you to a dominance, and then that that you expect a tonic, and then he goes somewhere else, and then just leaves it, you know. And so mm -hmm. if you have the expectation of oh yeah, there's a tonic that dominant, therefore I'm expecting a tonic, like you have to have that base expectation, otherwise you're not going to get that. He set all that up, but just never gave you the final harmony, 
Like he right. just never resolves it, right? And so once you realize that, it's like, oh my God, he just did that. You, it's such a fantastic moment. But I think for a person who's unaware, it might, uh, it may not be as appealing. I'm not sure. Right. And I wonder if people might not know the terminology or be aware of any of that and still might be affected greatly by it. That's um, true. Yeah. That'd be interesting. Absolutely. There might, I think a, a listener that is, is maybe not familiar with the terminology and all this stuff would still be surprised at the end with, mm-hmm. with this kind of main theme content entering so late like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the more so because it actually enters in the same register and actually in the same key. It enters in E flat major. Yeah. It's so cool. I mean, I, I think music is some, in some ways cyclical, but also in some ways, continually building and changing and uh you know i don't know if it ever comes full circle uh in some yeah ways, so. yeah yeah I, I, a lot I of good student, questions there i had a student that used to uh <clears throat> i mean he listened to so much stuff all, all, maybe even more than i listened to and that's that's saying a lot but uh, and so many <laughs> different genres uh but he didn't have a um a preconceived notion of a lot of things so i'd say well we're just you know playing this simpler piece and you're getting a five one. And he's like, well, why would you go to one? Do you have to? And I was like, well, <laughs> I mean, we, we, down to the basic, you know, the kernels of things, uh, kind of. But let's let's experiment with some other things. And I'd go to a random board, and he's like, well, could could work. And you know, maybe there are some physics <laughs> explanations and some cultural explanations. And I would I would argue that there are some things that work better than others. But and that's right. Like, it's hard, you know. And I think you really need to study that stuff. So. You're kind of taking it yeah. to the nth degree, but yeah. Right. Yeah. I think so to, to look at that question a little bit, uh, there's humans have uh, a restricted physiology. Uh, and so the, like the perception of dissonance is something that's, well, we can separate dissonance as a cultural phenomenon and mm-hmm. discordance as a physiological mm-hmm. phenomenon. Yeah. I like um, and, and dissonance uh, to like, this this right here uh, acoustically has beating because all of you're you're getting two notes whose overtone overtone series you know, closely overlap. Whereas this is the same two notes, uh, it still so has a, a discordant sound, but there's less overtones that are overlapping because it's in the highest register, and and so or, or less have, overtones that our human ears can perceive. So, yeah, so yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mathematically, yeah. infinity yeah. is infinity. So. Correct, <laughs> correct. So, so one sounds ominous and the other one sounds playful. Right, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. but they're, they're the same two notes and, and culturally we would define those as, as being the same dissonance. Um, but yeah, I mean, clearly they have a different sound to them. So, so there's a cultural understanding of dissonance, you know, that is fixed to times, but then there is a, a physiological limitation on how our ears work and how we perceive uh, concordance and discordance. I hadn't and, heard that for a while, and yeah. I love how you explained that. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it's. I think it's really helpful to sort of distinguish uh, cultural and, and physiological on the other side, and and I think the pendulum ends up swinging between those two sides. Like uh, there are periods of time where we tend to abandon all physiological explanations and and put everything on on uh, the responsibility of the culture. Mm. Um, but I think that's a I think that's a mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just to get to your question of wh- why does the dominant go to the tonic? Okay. And for, for the listeners out there, this is a dominant going to a tonic. 
And this is that question that your student asked is such a wonderful question. It's, it's a question that uh, Jean-Philippe Rameau uh, asked many times in, uh, in 1722. And he tried to get published in a scientific journal with his answer, and they refused him. Um, and But <laughs> they, they basically, his argument was that, uh, I think it's actually a really good argument, that when you, when you play the tonic, you're actually uh, embedded within that tonic is the overtone series, which actually includes the the dominant. And basically when the dominant goes to the tonic, it's sort of like the overtones are going back into the fundamental. It's kind of a, mm. a fun way to think of it. Um, yeah, so moral of the story with Jean-Philippe Clameau and, and, and your student, there are definitely physiological elements that are making these things work but culture can amplify or reduce them. Mm -hmm. That's a great answer. Thanks. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, yeah, well, that's, I don't know where you want to pick up. I know we got a, a little bit uh, down, a, down a rabbit hole there, but we can, we oh, can no, pick up with anything. Super, super fun questions. <laughs> this is, this has been great. So um, yeah. Is there, is there anything else that you wanted to point out, Tom, before we, yeah, I mean, I think um, if I could just end, I, I remember I, I read somewhere, it was about Isaac Newton. Um, I have a lot of physics references in overtone series because I, I studied yeah. physics, but yeah. uh, so that's why. But uh, someone was saying something along the effect of, uh, Dear Isaac, stop telling me about how the rainbow works. You're ruining it. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> like, I. I, I want to have a sense of wonder when I look at a rainbow. Yeah. Uh, and some people might say, say that to me, you know, you're, 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 when you're narrating, like I picture a different story. I don't want to picture your story. Right. Yeah. That's something you could, you know, I can imagine. Um, but I think to, to those people, I would say that when, when you figure out how a rainbow works, um, you know, with diffraction and, and wavelengths of light moving at different speeds and so forth, to me, that opens up more questions. <laughs> it's like, well, how does that all work, right? Like, what, why, why different wavelengths for different colors? Like, what, what's going on here? And so I have more questions than I did at the mm -hmm. beginning. And so, in fact, my wonder for the rainbow expands tremendously because there, it just it becomes more intrinsically interesting. And I've always believed that if uh, you know, if you're a, a tree expert. Uh, you can look at trees longer than someone who is not a tree expert with more wonder. And I think that can enrich your life in, in tremendous ways, you know, whether it be uh, being an expert in music or being an expert in trees or, or clouds or rainbows or any of these things. Um, you, you can derive a greater sense of fascination and wonder from these things and, and you'll live a potentially happier life. And so, uh, that's all to say, learn some form function theory. <laughs> yeah. I, yep. I love yeah. what you just said. I, I got to tell you that it, it really kind of <clears throat> um, builds on the theme that we talked about with Mark yesterday, as far yep. as like, you know, the willingness to, to, to um, stretch yourself just a little bit will increase the value tremendously of what you're listening to musically and will enhance your life. It, our art is, yeah. If you can, if art, I've talked to Elias many times, art is the, the expression that, that can't be 
said in any other way, whether it's music or dance or, or painting, but specifically music, like that's so abstract and it's so, yeah. um, uh, it literally is, it's, it's a communication device that we cannot communicate in another way. And, and so learning that language is, is, you know, important to understanding the full human experience. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, uh, in, in all seriousness, I, uh, don't think it's absolutely necessary that everybody learns form function theory, <laughs> but, um, I do think it's necessary for everybody to participate in music. Um, and where participate can be construed broadly, but I think it's more than just passively listening. And it's about being active in some way. That's the active participating. I think we'd have fewer coughs in the concert halls if that were the case. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. study too, but yeah. 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 Cleaner recordings, right? That's right, yeah. Wow, well, you wrap things Tom, up nicely. Yeah, Tom, thank you so much for your for your expertise and, and bringing a little bit more of that wonder to our experience and hopefully our listeners as well. I really appreciate that. Oh, my that. pleasure. It was, it was a real joy and love talking to you both. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to do it again. Elias, thank you yep. for, again, co-hosting this amazing episode. Having a lot of fun with you. It's great. Oh, it has been. It's been amazing. So... Uh, my name is Mike Levick, and you've been listening to And If Love Remains. I think that's